You may have noticed something a little uh, different about our sermon text. Usually I preach through a, a passage from, from one book as we go through a, a book of the Bible. Today we're doing something a, a little bit different, uh, doing something more specific to, to New Year's, considering these three different texts and, and what they say. Next week, uh, we're going to have a guest preacher, Tom Terrence from the C.S. Lewis Institute, is going to be here and preach for us. I will not be here. My family and I are going to be up in uh, Philadelphia at the church that we came from for the installation of one of my good friends as the new pastor there. Uh, so we're going to go celebrate with them. Uh, Tom will be here uh, next week, and then following that, we'll pick back up in Galatians and keep going right on through to the end, probably about sometime in the end of February, I think, is when we're going to be done with Galatians. So let's pray, and then we will get into God's Word this morning. Father, thank You that though everything around us changes and time continues to march on, that You are the same and Your years have no end. Thank you that your word is firmly fixed, an anchor and a refuge for us. And so we pray that you would instruct us by your word and spirit this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's New Year's Day. I hope some of you were like me and didn't stay up until midnight. Uh, New Year's Day means, of course, for many people, New Year's resolutions. Did you make any New Year's resolutions? Have you, have you broken any of them yet? <laughs> Consistently, the most popular New Year's resolutions seem to be uh, things that have to do with personal health or self-care, diet, exercise, weight loss, stress management, so forth. Those are certainly good things to commit to. But as Christians, of course, we know that the Bible says that physical training is of some value, but we are to train ourselves to be godly because godliness has value in all things, holding promise both for the present life and the life to come. So when Christians make New Year's resolutions, we may understandably lean into this idea of training or disciplining ourselves for godliness. Uh, spiritual New Year's resolutions may look something like this. Does this sound familiar? I'm going to pray more. I'm going to read the Bible consistently. I'm going to give more. I'm going to serve more. I'm going to share the gospel more. I'm going to find victory over this besetting sin. I'm going to cultivate this godly virtue. And that doesn't just happen at, at New Year's. This is, this is just the kind of resolutions that we make all the time in our spiritual lives. And these seem like good things, ways to train ourselves for godliness. But I have a concern about them. Let me explain. I was once involved with a parachurch organization to which I owe a lot for who I am, and, and I'm, I'm profoundly grateful to them. But one of the things that I inherited from my time with them was a somewhat unhealthy view of spiritual disciplines. See, in my experience, and, and it was generally more caught than taught, what was important was that you just try really hard to do all of these good spiritual things consistently. And that's how you grow as a Christian. 
You're saved by grace, yes, but then you grow by disciplining yourself for godliness. And if you're not growing, then you're either not being disciplined enough or you need to try harder. Well, much of of these things was in, in, instructed to us. We were, we were given quite a bit of teaching on how to practice these spiritual disciplines. There was precious little said about how, if all, if at all, they related to Christ and His gospel. And that's my concern. It's not so much with what we resolve to do for our spiritual good, but rather that we have a tendency to do these things without a clear understanding about how they connect to Jesus. And without this, no matter how well or how consistently we practice these things on our own, they won't really lead to transformation or maturity, but instead they will actually lead us to pride or despair. I've come to the conviction that there's actually a a set of spiritual disciplines or resolutions, you could say, that stand behind and beneath and before all those we may normally think about. The most important resolutions you could make for the coming year, or any year. We read each of them a few moments ago. The resolutions that Scripture calls us to this morning are these. Remember Jesus. Consider Jesus. Look to Jesus. Remember Jesus. Consider Jesus. Look to Jesus. These may not seem like particularly radical commitments, and that's true in the sense that they're not extreme. Uh, They don't lead you to become a Navy SEAL for Jesus. But in another respect, I'd argue that they are absolutely radical because the word radical means from the root. These commitments to remember, consider, and look to Jesus are radical in that they are the root. They are the foundational, the central duties of the Christian life. They are, if you will, heart resolutions, not only because they concern our hearts, but because they represent the the pulsating core of Christian spirituality. They are the, the practices that oxygenate and animate the rest of our spiritual lives. They give power and life and vitality to everything else that we do. They they pump blood to our limbs and organs, without which everything begins to malfunction and shut down. As we go, you'll notice there's quite a bit of overlap in these ideas, remembering, considering, looking. And in fact, as we will find, they overlap so much that we may well say they're just three ways of talking about the same basic thing, the, the same basic idea, this one grand central duty in the Christian life, to behold and abide in the risen Lord Jesus. So we'll look at each one of these resolutions in turn, starting with 2 Timothy 2.8, remember Jesus. Again, 2 Timothy 2.8, remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. Notice, to begin with, what we are instructed to do, we are instructed to remember Jesus. Remember Jesus. Really? Was was Timothy, Paul's young protege, his apostolic delegate, his partner in gospel ministry, was Timothy really somehow in such danger of forgetting Jesus? 
Did Paul felt it necessary to remind him to, that he had to take care to remember Jesus? No, I don't think that's what's going on here, of course. I, I, I think it's, it's not so much that he's calling on Timothy to remember Jesus because he's in danger of forgetting him, so much as it's Paul calling Timothy to call something to mind intentionally, consistently, to consciously reflect on something. And then what we are called to remember, reflect on, intentionally, consistently call to mind is Jesus. There's, of course, much that we could set ourselves to remember about Jesus, but want to focus on the two things that Paul says here. He says, remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. I'm going to take those in reverse order. First, we remember Jesus who is descended from David. This may seem like an odd thing to call out here. Wouldn't it make more sense to say, remember Jesus Christ crucified for your sins? Of course, that's certainly true, and Paul absolutely says that elsewhere, and it's affirmed repeatedly through the New Testament. But, but what's so important about being reminded that Jesus was descended from David? To begin with, it reinforces what we've just celebrated at Christmas, that Christ was truly human. He did not merely appear to be human. There are some places in Scripture where angels come and interact with people and they appear to be human beings. But while they appear to be human, they are not human. They're not descended from anyone. They're not born. They don't die. The angels who appear to be human might look like us, but they are different creatures altogether. But this isn't the case with Jesus. Jesus didn't merely appear to be human. He was truly human. He had a genealogy with ancestors. He had a human body and soul. He has DNA. He needed to eat and sleep. He was, as Hebrews 2 says, made like us, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. And later in Hebrews, we read that because Jesus is like us in every way except for sin, that we have a, a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. So to remember that Jesus was descended from David is to remember that he was and is truly human, a faithful high priest like us in every way except for sin, who can sympathize with our weaknesses and temptations because he too was weak and tempted. It's a reminder that no matter how alone you feel, Jesus can sympathize because he truly experienced the same things. In a room like this, there are hundreds of hurts and pains and wounds and anxieties and burdens and cares some known only to you who carry them. But listen, friends, to remember that, that Jesus is descended from David is, is, in a sense, to remember that there is not one, not one of these cares that he can't sympathize with. What a friend we have in Jesus, 
all our sins and griefs to bear. To remember that Jesus is descended from David is also to call to mind that He is the fulfillment of thousands of years of promises. He's not just descended from David as a genealogical fact. He is the descendant of David, the Christ, the promised Savior King of David's line. He was, as one song puts it, great David's greater son. And remember that he is David's son, the Christ, is not just an affirmation of his identity, but it's a, it's a confession of the faithfulness of God. Christ is at the center of all of God's promises. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. That is, Christ is the fulfillment of all of God's promises and purposes. So to resolve to remember that Jesus was descended from David is, is to remember that God is utterly faithful. And that his faithfulness is seen most clearly in the giving of his son for us. A son of David's line to sit on his throne and reign forever just as he promised. We remember that Jesus was descended from David and we see God's compassion and God's faithfulness. We're also called to remember here that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. That seems obvious. Of course, we believe that Christ was raised from the dead. That's at the, the heart of what we believe. It's in believing that God raised Christ from the dead that we are saved. And if Christ was not raised from the dead, then our faith is futile and we're still in our sins. But remembering that Christ was raised from the dead is more than simply acknowledging and calling to mind that truth, saying that it's true, believing that it's true. It also means carefully contemplating the, the implications of that truth few examples. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, our justification is secured and certain. We've been talking much about this through the book of Galatians. Romans 4.25, He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. We remember Jesus raised from the dead and we are led back to this truth that because Christ is raised from the dead, our justification, our standing of righteousness before God is as secure as Christ's place in heaven. once heard a friend of mine say it this way, if you're a Christian, Christ would have to be torn out of heaven and sucked back into the grave in order for the punctuation at the end of your life to go from a period back to a question mark. Or again, because Jesus was raised from the dead, he has authority over life and death. Revelation 1.18, Jesus said, I am the living one, I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Hebrews 2 said that all people are held captive by the fear of death, and we we go through life medicating ourselves with soul-numbing distractions, trying to stave off any reflection on our mortality, and all the while that the reality of our coming death steps ever closer. One prominent NFL quarterback recently claimed to have conquered his fear of death through the use of psychedelic drugs. 
but he hasn't really conquered his fear of death, has he? He's just taken a shot of existential Novocaine, covering it over temporarily. But I know someone who can truly release us from the fear of death. Because he died and was raised and is alive forevermore. He has been appointed the judge of the living and the dead, and the keys of death and the grave are in his hands. He has life in himself and has authority to give life to whomever he will. And whoever believes in him, though he dies, yet will he live. And whoever lives and believes in him will never die. And one day the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, raised from the dead and rise again. We do not need to fear death because Jesus has conquered death and promises eternal life, a promise that is guaranteed by his own resurrection. I could go on, but you see the significance of meditating on Christ in, in this way. We're called to remember Jesus raised from the dead, descended from David. Second, we're called to consider Jesus. Here we look at Hebrews three, chapter, uh, Hebrews chapter three, verse one. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on, or as other translations put it, consider Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. Here again, there's something that we are instructed to do, to consider Jesus, that is to fix our thoughts on Jesus. That word consider, what the NIV, our our translation translates as fix your thoughts on, means to take careful notice, to contemplate, to reflect on, or we might say to meditate on. Notice the author here is not using this statement uh, as a way to share the gospel with non-Christians, asking them to consider the claims of Christ. That's a good thing to do, but that's not what he's saying here. Rather, he's, he's calling on Christians. He calls them holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling. He's calling on Christians to consider Jesus, to fix their thoughts on Jesus. That is, the idea of considering Jesus is not something that we do only when we, be, when we become Christians, or in order to become Christians. Rather, the whole of the Christian life is one of considering Jesus, fixing your thoughts on Jesus. What then are we to consider about Jesus? Again, there's much that we could say, but I'll limit myself to these two things that the verse in particular calls our attention to. We're to fix our thoughts on Jesus whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. First, we're to consider Jesus as our apostle. This is really interesting. It's the only place in Scripture where Jesus himself is called an apostle. But it makes sense. Uh, An apostle is one who is sent as a representative of another to fulfill a mission, And there are dozens of times through the Gospels that that Jesus speaks of himself as the one who was sent, or says, the Father has sent me. We just read an example of that on Christmas Eve in Galatians 4.4, God sent his Son. 
To consider Jesus as our apostle means to reflect on him as the one whom God sent to be his full and final messenger. As we read in Hebrews 1, in the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. In this sense, it's another way of affirming that Jesus is the the great prophet promised to Moses, one sent from God to instruct the people and speak God's word. But Jesus isn't only the messenger, he's also the message. He not only speaks the word of God, but he is the word of God, the word made flesh. He both proclaims God's gospel and is himself God's gospel. And as such, there's no one who can more perfectly or completely reveal who God is. John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, he has made him known. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the exact representation of his nature. He so perfectly and completely reveals God that he can say, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And that is very crucial for us to to dwell on because we are so prone to think that God is different than he is. That God is is somehow not quite like Jesus. Jesus is God's good side. He's the one that defends us from a God who maybe isn't quite as good as as we might hope. But to consider Jesus as the great apostle, as we are called to do here, is to confess that there is not another God hiding behind Jesus who is different from him. That is to say that what Jesus is like God is like. Jesus perfectly reveals the Father's heart, a God gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We're also called here to consider Jesus as our high priest. We probably don't spend a lot of time thinking about Jesus in this way. Uh, Not least because, in general, that title, high priest, doesn't mean a whole lot to us in our everyday lives. But it was extremely important for the people of Israel. And this language of priesthood uh, and and this priestly language is used consistently to describe Jesus, and especially so in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 5.1, we read that the principal duties of the high priest were to represent the people in matters related to God and to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. The high priest acted as a a mediator between God and the people. But every human high priest was ultimately weak, imperfect, sinful, and mortal. But Jesus is the great, perfect, sinless, and eternal high priest. Listen to the difference that we read here in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 to 26. Now, there have been many of those priests, these human high priests, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. 
But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Again, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 to 13. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, that is Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus truly and permanently represents us to God as our advocate. He offers a a true and permanent sacrifice for sin in his own death in our place. And, And the upshot of all of this, the author of Hebrews tells us, is that he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Because Jesus is our great high priest, we can be confident that there is a a final and fully sufficient atonement that's been made for our sins and that we have a permanent advocate and representative before God. We don't need to worry that our high priest, the one who knows us, the one on on whose good side we find ourselves, we don't need to worry that he's going to die off or be voted out of office. And when we show up, we'll find someone who doesn't know us, who hasn't interceded for us or has neglected to atone for us. We'll find Jesus who lives forever to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Consider Jesus. Fix your thoughts on Jesus, our apostle and high priest. And then third, we are to look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Hebrews 12, starting in verse 1 again. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us Throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. The instruction here is to fix our eyes on Jesus or to look to Jesus, an idea closely related to what we just read in Hebrews 3, that we are to fix our thoughts on Jesus. Of course, the point is not to physically look to Jesus. The language of sight here is is not the sight of the eyes, it's the sight of faith. Just as Paul says right now, we walk by faith and not by sight. So it's not a looking with our eyes, but it's the, the heart's contemplation and reflection on and beholding of Jesus. What about Jesus are we to fix our eyes on? And as before, there are many things that we could mention here. But look just at what Scripture calls our attention to in this passage. First, we're to fix our eyes on Jesus as the pioneer of faith. What does that mean? How is Jesus the pioneer of faith? The translation pioneer for this word may not be the most helpful, for no other reason than 
our conception of pioneers are people heading west in coonskin caps and Conestoga wagons. Perhaps better would be something like founder or author or source. We can understand what this means in two ways, depending on how we understand the word faith. Sometimes faith can mean the content of what we believe, and other times it can mean our act of believing. And so to say that Christ is the pioneer of faith is, means that He's the one with whom our faith, that is what we believe, originates. He Himself is the object of that faith. He's also the one with whom our faith, that is, our act of believing itself, originates. He's both the author of the gospel and the source of our believing the gospel. And we are also called here to fix our eyes on Jesus as the perfecter of faith. How is Jesus the perfecter of faith? The idea of being a perfecter here is the idea of one who who brings his work to a successful conclusion. Baseball terms, this is a lockdown closer like Mariano Rivera. When he comes in, the game is over. Again, we might understand this idea in a few ways. Jesus is the perfecter of faith and that He is the one who completes the work of redemption for us. He didn't leave any gospel work for us to complete. He didn't just come to give us a boost and now say, you guys take it from here. He did it all, which is why when He died on the cross, He said, it is finished. And He's the perfecter of our faith and that He is the one who completes the work of redemption in us. He doesn't start work in us and then leave that work for us to finish on our own. And the fact that Jesus is the pioneer and perfecter of faith means that our salvation is entirely by grace and entirely certain. It doesn't start with you. Salvation is not like an internal combustion engine that's, that's waiting for you to turn the key or press the button before it starts. Nor does it end with you. It's not reliant on you keeping your foot on the gas enough in order to keep it going. As we read this in Philippians 1.6, a verse I'm sure many of you know well, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He began it. He will complete it. That means no matter what happens, no matter what discouragements befall you, no matter who abandons or forsakes you, Jesus won't. He finishes what he starts with everyone in whom he starts it. Now, it's probably become clear, as I said before, these three ideas, remembering, considering, looking, just just different ways of talking about this same idea that we are transformed by beholding Christ. It's the same thing that we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We all with unveiled faces contemplate or behold the Lord's glory are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory. Remembering, considering, looking to Jesus are just ways of talking about this one central, essential duty of the Christian life, which is to behold and abide in Jesus. 
Now, how does this affect the way that we think about making resolutions for our spiritual good growth? It means that when we come to spiritual disciplines, good things like prayer and Bible reading and worship and fellowship and giving and serving, we must take care that we don't commit to them in some kind of abstract way. What I mean is this. We may well make a resolution that we're going to pray more or read the Bible more, but we do so apart from a conscious understanding of how those things relate to Jesus. And we commit to them because, well, we're supposed to do that. And if we do that, it just means that we'll, we'll grow. We know they're for our spiritual good, so we just, we just commit to do it. But, but left in this sort of ill-defined territory, all our attempts at spiritual obedience will lead to one of two outcomes. Either they will become a source of boasting... I haven't missed a day of my Bible reading. I pray for an hour a day. I fast twice a week. I give tithes on everything I own. I'm not sinning like other people. You'll be filled with pride at your spiritual accomplishments. Or it will lead to a crushing burden. I haven't lived up to the commitments and resolutions I made to be a better Christian. I haven't read my Bible as much as I want to. I haven't prayed as much as I want to. And you'll be laden with guilt at your failure to live up to this standard of obedience. Or to put it differently, to make such spiritual resolutions outside of the context of a clear connection and relation to Jesus and his gospel is effectively to place yourself under a new, self-created, self-imposed law. So we've been studying in the book of Galatians, that's, that's a dead end. It's to think like the Galatians thought, that having been begun by the Spirit, you'll now be perfected by the flesh. There's a a way of disciplining yourself for godliness that has no conscious or intentional connection to Jesus, other than maybe He's the one that told you you need to do this. And in that context, spiritual disciplines inevitably become at best merely a duty, not a delight. But place them in the context of this overarching foundational resolution of remembering and considering and looking to Jesus, and they are transformed. Bible reading no longer is just something I have to do because I have to have a quiet time when I wake up in the morning. Quiet times are good. Reading the Bible in the morning is is good. But left on its own, it will become this, this burden, this this box that you have to, to check. But put in this context, Bible reading is no longer just something we have to do because, well, we're supposed to do it. Now Bible reading becomes a means by which we remember and consider and look to Jesus. The one who is the fulfillment and at the center of everything that Scripture teaches and promises Take prayer, and I'll use this as a personal example. I've shared this before. Some of you may recall that prayer is one of the hardest spiritual disciplines for me personally. And for whatever reason, it's a a struggle. It's a battle. For some people, it seems like prayer is like skating on ice. For me, it often feels like walking through mud. 
In an effort to grow myself in this, I've tried all sorts of different techniques, and I've read all sorts of books on prayer. I've got a whole shelf full of books on prayer. Some of them have some helpful things in them, but generally speaking, they have not helped me to pray. I've gotten all sorts of advice about prayer, but for all of this, I've found very little traction. It's like spitting my tires in an icy ditch. But there's one thing I've found that drives me to prayer and gives me grip and pulls me out of that that ditch, and that's for me to take my focus off of prayer and to put it onto Christ. When I need help finding a way to pray, I don't just need another book on prayer. I don't need more advice or techniques, suggestions. What I need, I've found, is something that will draw my attention to and stir my affections for Jesus. If I try to pray by thinking hard about prayer and trying harder to pray, I can never seem to get any traction. But if I understand that prayer is not just an abstract duty, but it is a means by which I am looking to Jesus and receiving from His fullness grace upon grace, I'm thinking less about prayer and more about Christ, and prayer no longer seems like a duty, but a delight. You see the difference? So left to themselves, these resolutions to be more spiritually disciplined become either a source of boasting or a, a crushing burden. But if we understand them not as bare duties in themselves, but as the means by which we behold and reflect on and enjoy Jesus, then they suddenly go from being burdensome to life-giving. Each of these instructions that we receive here, remember, consider, look to Jesus, imply intentionality and care. These are not things that we can do haphazardly. We must carve out space in our crowded schedules, but more importantly, we have to carve out space in our crowded hearts to focus and reflect on this great descendant of David, this risen Savior King, Apostle, High Priest, Pioneer, and Perfector of Faith. Let me give you a few specific suggestions as to how you might do this. It's certainly not the only Ways And these are not intended to be commands that you are to obey as a new law. These are merely suggestions for how you might practice this. First, read the Gospels. So many people commit to reading through the whole Bible in a year, and that's certainly an admirable goal and one that I would commend to you in, in some circumstances. But there's nothing that makes reading the whole Bible in a year more spiritually virtuous or beneficial than reading a smaller section of the Bible more deliberately. So what if you committed yourself to reading through the Gospels again? Not in a hurried way to check a box on a Bible reading chart, not to make it by the end of 2023, but slowly and carefully with the purpose of seeing afresh who this Jesus is who perfectly reveals what God is like. I have a a chart that I've created for myself uh, that follows along with a wonderful little devotional commentary by J.C. Ryle through the Gospels. It takes you through the Gospels in 414 days. Now, if you're OCD and you need to be done in 365 days, this is not for you. 414 days and read through the Gospels slowly, passage by passage, 
thinking not primarily what is this saying that I need to do to change, but thinking who is this Jesus who is revealed here in the Word. Second, I encourage you to read books about who Jesus is. And there's two in particular I'd commend to you. I mentioned this in my email on Friday. The first is a book called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. Second, Man of Sorrows, King of Glory by Jaunty Rhodes. We have a few copies of each in the bookstall. At least I, they were there when I came in this morning. If you haven't taken them yet, uh, feel free to pick those up. Uh, we also have them in the library. These are the, the kinds of books that are precious because of how they point us to Jesus and cause us to meditate more on who He is. Third, I prioritize gathering with the church weekly. In one sense, that might appear to be self-serving. I'm a pastor. Of course I'm going to tell you to come to church every week. And you are here, so maybe I don't need to tell you this, but, but we need one another to help each other remember and consider and look to Jesus. So left to myself, my vision of Jesus may become clouded and skewed. I'll begin to think of him other than, than what he is. I need others to help me call to mind and meditate on what is actually true about him. We gather together in the church. It's not like a movie theater. We're not just coming as discrete individuals who all happen to be watching the same show. We're teaching and encouraging and instructing and comforting one another. It's part of the reason why being physically present here is so important. We need to be here to help one another look to Jesus. So whatever other resolutions you make for your spiritual good this year, friends, resolve to remember and consider and look to Jesus. These are the, the core of what the Christian life is about these are the most important disciplines, resolutions that you could make for this year or indeed every day. And in so doing, we will be transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that your word is truth. Sanctify us by your word. And Lord, as we, as we commit ourselves afresh to, to seek the Lord Jesus, we pray that you might give us clear, unobstructed views of who he is, that we might rest in Him and rejoice in Him, and that in so doing, we might be led into greater and greater godliness and holiness. We might lead others to worship You as well. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.